Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 36, General and Prince Bagration, Hero of the Russian Army. Before we get to our episode, I wanted to let our listeners know that we have started a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast monetarily. If you go to patreon.com and search for Generals and Napoleon, you'll see that there are three membership tiers offering many bonus options and ad-free content for you. We have a general of brigade option, a general of division option, or a marshal of the empire option, all offering different bonuses, ad-free content, merchandise, and requests and shout outs to our Patreon supporters. So if you have a moment, please check out our page on patreon.com. Now, on with the show. We have a special guest with us today, all the way from England, our good friend, Jimmy Chen of NapoleonicImpressions.com. Uh, hi, John. Very happy to be here again. Um, it's, it's been a while. And um, if listeners don't know uh, who I am, I'm the proprietor of Napoleonic Impressions, an online store selling uh, merchandise inspired by the Napoleonic era, including many generals and marshals who have been covered uh, on this very podcast already. Um, and you know, uh, listeners are very welcome to see what we have in store. We have a great range of mugs and uh, posters featuring manga-style portraits of uh, many uh, prominent Napoleonic figures. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, we're thrilled to have you on. I, I love your website. Every time I go on there, I find some new cool product that I must have. And, uh, I highly recommend it to all of my listeners to at least check out. And um, yeah, if you have a Napoleonic fan in your life, it's a great place to get a gift. Um, we had Jimmy on a few episodes ago, episode 22. We did a in-depth look at Marshall DeVue and his performance in Russia. And I thought for this episode, we'd go across enemy lines and go to the Russian side and discuss General, or should I say Prince, Bagration. Is that how I say it, Jimmy? Yeah, that's good. All right. And uh, no, one of uh, the best generals uh, on the Russian side during the Napoleonic era, there's a great quote Napoleon had, quote, Russia has no good generals. The only exception is Bagration, end quote. And uh, that just sums up what his opponents thought of him. Like he performed well, not only against the French, but uh, as well in Sweden and some other fronts, correct, Jimmy? Mm -hmm. That's, that's absolutely correct, yes. Yep. So let's get into his story. Um, he was born in July of 1765. Uh, was that in Georgia or the Russian Empire? Where, where was he born? He was uh, born in uh, Georgia mm -hmm. uh, at the time, and he was actually born into the Georgian royal family. I mean, the uh, Bagrationi dynasty uh, is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, royal dynasty um, in, well, Europe, depending on whether you call Georgia, Georgia part of Europe. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, but very, very, very famous, very old, like you're saying, and uh, yeah, just born into a prominent family. Yes. And I mean, he lived during a, <laughs> a period of great difficulty for Georgia. So like, as far as where at the time Georgia was split into you know two or three kingdoms, and although they uh, remained nominally independent until the early 19th century, 
already in the late 18th century, it was moving into the Russian sphere of influence, having previously been under the protection of, of Persia. So basically the Georgians were getting caught up in uh, the Russian imperial expansion southwards. I think it was just an yeah. enlarging sphere of influence by Russia and Georgia was caught up in that. So yeah. uh, it looks like he was well-educated. Um, in addition to mm -hmm. studying Russian, he also learned how to speak German, Persian, Turkish, and Armenian and Georgian by his father. Yes, that's um, that's right. Although uh, uh, rather um, uniquely, I think, uh, among sort of Russian aristocrats, uh, he never learned uh, to speak French. But as as you say, you know, he had a, a very privileged um, upbringing and, uh, and education, as expected uh, from a prince. And uh, his father uh, Ivan uh, served uh, in the Russian army, so um, Pyotr, yeah, as with a lot of uh, Russian aristocrats, uh, followed in his uh, father's uh, footsteps. Yeah, it's um, interesting that, you know, I can see in 1782, he enlisted in the Imperial Russian Army um, as a yeah. sergeant, not an officer. Uh, but, you know, he was the eldest son. He could have just lived a life of luxury and taken it easy, but he chose <laughs> a different path. Um, yes, uh, that's true. Although in the Russian Empire, military service was really, you know, uh, the way to be noticed and the way to make your way up um, the ranks. Mm. So he really wanted to be an influential uh, player in uh, in Russia. Uh, the military was one of the chief ways um, to achieve that. And certainly the, the firstborn sons of a lot of um, uh, uh, of a lot of uh, aristocrats would um, have gone into the army. Uh, whereas, you know, second and third born sons may have chosen a career either at the court or in the civil service bureaucracy, something like that. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. He had a younger brother, Roman, who would also join the army and the Cossacks and become a general, as did Bagration uh, in this, That's in, right. you know, two brothers yeah. in the Imperial Russian army. That's pretty impressive. With with Kyoto, um specifically, um, as you say, he uh, he signed up to the Russian army in 1782, mm -hmm. and it's... Uh, rather interesting that uh, he did so in the Astrakhan uh, Infantry Regiment, mm -hmm. which is also very closely associated with the likes of um, uh, Alexander Suvorov and Mikhail Kutuzov, you know, two of the greatest Russian yep. commanders, you know, not only of the era, but of Russian history in general. No, yeah, those are two good ones to apprentice under, for sure. <laughs> Um, um, did he see action right away or, or, or not quite yet? Uh, well, I think um, early on he spent a couple of years you know, fighting in the Caucasus um, in the uh, Russian-Chakassian War, which you know, is this sort of long drawn out uh, conflict which lasted over a century. You know, it wasn't until you know, the 1860s that um, uh, Chakassia, which is kind of like, well, almost kind of... Um, near sort of like Chechnya, um, modern-day Chechnya, um, mm. was um, uh, pacified by mm. uh, by the Russian uh, imperial forces. So it's, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of like irregular warfare that they were fighting um, uh, at the time. Yeah, um, they probably were, he learned a lot of his guerrilla warfare tactics, I would imagine. 
Um, yes, uh, you know, absolutely. That that sort of um, theater would um, uh, provide him with the with the experience um, uh, for that. You know, later on in, in his career, um, and uh, after uh, after the Caucasus, he soon found himself you know, uh, serving under um, Suvorov um, in the Russo-Turkish War uh, from 1787 to uh, 92, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, uh, he distinguished himself um, at the siege of uh, Ochakov in 1788. Yeah, um, I got promoted yeah. to uh, lieutenant colonel in 1794. Uh, yeah, old colonel in 1798, and general in 1799. So he really moved up the ranks, even for um, an aristocrat. He moved up pretty quick. That's uh, that's very true, and I think part of that was due to the fact that in 1794. Uh, when he was uh, serving in Poland, uh, again, under Suvorov, um, suppressing the uh, Kosciuszko uh, uprising. Mm -hmm. um, that was where he really struck up um, a friendship uh, with uh, Suvorov. Mm -hmm. And he saw, uh, and he saw uh, um, him as, as an inspiration. You know, his aggressive instincts on the battlefield you know, made a big impression. And you know, later on, uh, while a general Bagration would often remind his men of Suvorov's uh, famous maxim, you know, in Russia, "Pulya durak shtik molodets," or "The bullet is a fool, the bayonet a good lad." So the idea that you know you can't just you know stand in a line shooting at people, you have to actually you know go you know charging on the point of the bayonet and carry the battlefield um, uh, that way. Yeah, he strikes me almost as a, a chess player, almost uh, similar to a Marshall Lawn or um, even a Davout. Just, you know, he, mm. he liked everything orderly. You know, he wanted his troops in columns. He wanted his batteries and cannons nicely set up. Seems like this guy was uh, pretty advanced in his way of thinking. Um, yes, that's right. And it, it's interesting that you bring up um, Marshall Lawn because there are actually a lot of uh, similarities mm -hmm. uh, between the two. They... Uh, Met their ends, you know, mortally wounded on uh, on battlefield. Uh, spoiler alert! Um, yeah, yeah, spoiler. And, and they, they met a few times in battle against each other. That's so. that. That's true, and we'll we'll um, certainly go on um, to that um, uh, fairly soon. And one of the other attributes is that um, they often found themselves leading vanguards mm -hmm. um, yeah. for their respective uh, commanders. You know, partly as a result of their um, aggressive instincts, uh, yeah. but both of them were very resourceful defensive um, generals as well. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, in um, actually in in February um, 1799, which is when um, uh, Bagration was uh, promoted um, to major major general, and then he accompanied um, Suvorov on his. Uh, famous Italian uh, and Swiss campaigns mm -hmm. as as the vanguard vanguard uh, commander of the Allied army. Yeah. Um, so you know, spearheading um, Allied attacks, especially um, at the battles um, of the Yadda and uh, and the Battle of Novi. Novi. Um, right. And, those, and went well. those, went well. those went very well. Until <laughs> they met Massena in uh, Switzerland, everything was going fine. Yes, I mean, we're, we're, although to be fair to Suvorov uh, and Bulgarian, uh, the Battle of Zurich was—they um, you know, didn't actually get um, to Zurich. 
true. Uh, for um, uh, the the second Russian army under uh, uh, General Korsakov was uh, defeated by uh, Messina. The reasons for the failure of that campaign, because Suvorov was and his Austrian allies um, were immensely successful at pretty much you know wiping out all of uh, the gains uh, of Napoleon's first um, Italian campaign, and right. uh, and reestablishing Austrian control over uh, northern it Italy. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, as a result of that, uh, while Suvorov was basically you know talking about potentially marching on Paris, right. um, <laughs> the Austrians they began to realize well you know we've got what we wanted right and we're not really you know we're not terribly thrilled about the prospects of these russians rampaging all over europe right, right. <laughs> yeah, i believe they sent archduke charles up north to capture like the netherlands and so even before they got to switzerland they were kind of breaking apart their force correct yes so um yeah, uh, Archduke Charles was supposed to be, you know, helping um, helping the Russians uh, around um, uh, around Zurich, but he basically, uh, yeah, was under orders to 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 do his own stuff, and that left the Russians very vulnerable. Yeah, I think that was some of his best work. Uh, Suvorov and Bagration was, you know, extricating themselves from that mess before Massena destroyed them all. Right, precisely, and. Um, but yeah, as a result of that campaign, basically, you know, the Russians didn't really get very much um, at all. And even though for the time being, the Austrians maintained uh, control over northern Italy, um, yeah, come uh, 1800, uh, First Consul Bonaparte um, is going to take that away from them again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. And uh, also in that year, uh, the prince gets married, correct? Uh, that's that's right, and it's so uh, Bagration's uh, relationship with uh, the imperial court is uh, <laughs> it's a bit it's complicated <laughs> at best. I would say, yeah, right, because he is shown, you know, some favor. Actually, it is in eighteen hundred when he uh, becomes confirmed as uh, as a prince or knyaz in in Russian, yeah. um, because this is when. Uh, Russia begins annexing the Georgian uh, kingdoms. Right. Uh, so, and as part of uh, Russian imperial policy, you know, they would often give treatment to the elites of their new subject na uh, nations. Right. Uh, so, and indeed, you know, sometimes more favorably than you know native Russian aristocrats. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why uh, Bagration uh, was given the, the, the title of uh, Knyaz. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, as you say, uh, during the same year, uh, Tsar Paul basically forced him <laughs> into, <laughs> into marrying uh, uh, Yekaterina or Catherine uh, Skavronskaya, um, who was uh, a niece of uh, 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 Grigory uh, Pachonkin, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Catherine the Great's uh, favorite. Um, mm -hmm. But e even though, you know, uh, there was like an initial infatuation, they, the marriage, you know, was pretty quickly a failure. Right. 
right. and uh, and uh, Catherine, you know, soon basically you know, left Russia, went to Vienna, became the uh, became the mistress of uh, Clemens von Metternich, who yeah. um, you know, within a few years would uh, achieve you know much uh, greater renown. Yeah, um, it a bit of a wild life that one. Uh, she, yeah. Well, Metternich basically um, nicknamed her the Naked Angel because she'd <laughs> go around uh, uh, Vienna, you know, dressed in, you know, rather risque clothing. Agression was an angel himself. I mean, at this time, he was a heavy gambler and was, you know, getting into a lot of trouble with his losses. He had to sell some of his real estate to cover that, correct? That's that's right. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> with... Um, with Bagration, I think with that sort of officer's lifestyle, it was kind of like, you know, he wasn't the only one right. um, doing that sort of thing. Um, but also, uh, you know, part of the reason why he may have been forced into, uh, into this marriage was um, because, again, it's difficult to prove anything but it seems like you know he enjoyed a pretty close relationship with uh, Grand Duchess uh, Yekaterina Pavlovna, uh, mm -hmm. the daughter of Tsar Paul, uh, and basically you know the imperial family, even though you know, Bagration was technically royalty. Um, right. Uh, tricky when you're dating your boss's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. And it looks like from there, uh, 1805 is really when he meets the French and Napoleon. Well. He, he met the French, obviously, in Switzerland, but this is the first time mm -hmm. he's battling against Napoleon. That's right. And uh, 1805 in general is not a good year for the Russian army. Mm. But Bagration was one of a few Russian generals who emerged from the campaign with an enhanced reputation. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in particular, uh, at the Battle of Schoengraben, um, he was basically... Well, uh, he was part of uh, Kutuzov's army, which was retreating uh, in order to um, to get to uh, Olmutz mm -hmm. um, to basically regroup after the uh, the calamity of of Ulm with uh, Gen uh, with General Mack having you know lost his army. Right, um, and Kutuzov was marching to join Mack, but having. Uh, yeah, having learned of the uh, of the news of um, Max capitulation, he realized that you know <laughs> the further he went, the closer he would get um, to Napoleon, mm -hmm. and he was in absolutely in no no condition to um, uh, to face the Grand Armée at this point. Right. So he had to um, uh, retreat in order to join up with some Russian uh, reinforcements. Uh, yeah, uh, it was clever. Like he. You know, at this time he only has seven thousand troops, and he's being basically surrounded by twenty thousand Frenchmen. And he decides to stall them with talks for an armistice. Correct? That that's right. So yeah, at, at Schoengarben, he's uh, he's he's detached um, with regard, and basically, you know, uh, Kutuzov says, you know, like I don't care if all of you die. Like we need to like you need to win us time to right. get the rest of the army. Um, uh, yeah, to safety, mm -hmm. and uh, as you say, initially, uh, Bagration tries to open um, negotiations with uh, with Murat, uh -huh. and um, you know, not for 
the first and not for the last time in his career, um, Murat basically is duped. Yeah, there's um, a great quote from Napoleon, uh, if I may. Mm-hmm. Quote, I cannot find words to express my displeasure. You only command my vanguard and have no right to agree to an armistice without my orders. You will cost me the fruits of a campaign and the armistice at once and attack the enemy. Inform him that the general who signed this has no power to make it, that only the Russian emperor has the right. And when the Russian emperor ratifies this agreement, I will also ratify it. But it is only a ruse. March and destroy the Russian army. I love that. I just love that he's yelling at Murat through this uh, communique. Yes. And uh, having received (laughs) this letter, that does uh, go on on the attack. So uh, Bagration does not have the full 24 hours. Um, but nevertheless, you know, he's able to, to dig in. And as you say, like, I think uh, Mira and Lance toge- and Lan together, they have, you know, maybe uh, 35,000 men, although not all of them are committed. Right. Um, but yeah, Bagration only has 7,000. Mm-hmm. And yet he's able to hold them on for, you know, six, seven hours in battle. Right. Um, and there's and, a lot of bravery there. Uh, I mean, they lose almost 3,000 troops, his, his um, core, but there's a lot of bravery on his part, you know, and, and his men's part in getting them, you know, out of that situation. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, Kutuzov basically gave them up for, um, for lost, but um, Bagration does manage to, you know, extricate what's left um, right. of, um, of his detachment, uh, of his regard. Um, and rejoins uh, Kutuzov. So he gets back, but unfortunately he gets back in time for Austerlitz where he actually <laughs> performs well, but uh, no one else does on that on that day. Yes, pretty much. So Bagration's, uh, uh, his, his forces uh, are deployed on the right, right flank of the Allied army. Mm-hmm. And they're actually you know, uh, directly opposite uh, Lan's uh, fifth corps. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, well, I presume, you know, everyone who listens to the podcast knows the general story of Austerlitz, mm-hmm. where, you know, the coalition left uh, essentially, you know, storms down uh, the Pratson Heights mm-hmm. uh, to, to attack, you know, a deliberately weakened uh, French right flank. Mm-hmm. And in the process, you know, the center is weakened and Marshal Salt marches up the Platzen Heights mm-hmm. and after you know, some bit of fighting managed to, to take hold of the heights and to basically you know split the coalition army in two mm-hmm. and um, that's yeah uh, that's really you know uh, Napoleon's strategic uh, masterstroke but at the time you know, Lan and Bagration are sort of sparring against each other and you know neither is really capable of um, achieving an advantage. But Bagration can, you know, has an idea of what's going on uh, in the rest of the field. So he decides that you know, the only sensible thing to do is to withdraw. And Marshall Lan is so upset that, you know, basically he's a sideshow even in the... Uh... <laughs> yes. The bulletin, he gets so upset he leaves the army because he thought he was fighting a pretty stout, you know, opponent in Bagration. That's that's right. It is quite um, funny what happens um, because 
yeah, obviously the um, you know, a lot of the glory uh, of Auslitz is you know handed to the likes of Davu, who's you know fighting this desperate action mm. on the right bank, and to Salt, who you know spearheads this uh, attack up the front of the correct of the present. Yeah. As you said, you know, Lan felt like he didn't um, get the credit that he he deserved for um, you know, managing to at least fight uh, Bagration. Right. Um, not only to a stalemate, but actually, you know, to to force him to retreat. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, the prince actually gets promoted again in 1805 to lieutenant general. And there's um, right. a great quote I want to bring up. Not only was he just a good leader on the field, he really took care of his men and was very worried about their health at all times. Uh, mm-hmm. The quote is, um, it's from a, uh, another Russian who visited um, Bagration's group and he wrote, quote, I visited several times the avant-garde, the advance guard, where many of my friends were serving in Prince Bagration's headquarters. The hospitable manner of the prince with subordinates, amicable, relation, amicable relations between themselves, harmony, cleanliness in the tents, the fresh and pleased appearance of the lower grades, proved the prince's good treatment and attitude toward them, and in all hearts, the pledge of general trust in him, end quote. So it seems like he was a real soldier's general. Yeah, and it's um, it's great you uh, brought that up because yeah, he was one of the most popular generals, uh, you know, within the Russian army mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. And but also his reputation, you know, spread across you know um, society, and it was such that in 1806 you know the uh, the court poet um gavrila um Dejavin, in a poem you know, uh gave him uh the nickname bog ration you know play on his name mm-hmm. uh, which literally means god of the army i love that which really reflected you know his reputation yeah yeah now um, at the same time he didn't always agree with his you know you know other generals like uh, bennington or kutusov mm-hmm. like he he, he or De Tolle, for that matter. He didn't always agree with <laughs> yes, their strategies. That's right. Yeah. Um, that's right. And I think, you know, over time, as he sort of became more senior, he he wanted to emulate Suvorov and he wanted to, like, have, you know, more of a strategic role. Um, but he never really um, had the uh, opportunity to do that. I mean, in 1807, you know, he, uh, he participates... Um, in the campaign, uh, At, uh I love. yeah, that's right, and under, under Bennington, and you know, again, you know, he uh, he exhibits you know tremendous bravery in the line of fire at um, both Isla and Friedland, but um, you know, those efforts were obviously in vain, and uh, you have the the Treaty of Tilsit, uh, right. in July, uh, which you know, briefly, uh, leads to peace, um, between France and uh uh and russia and uh as a result of that um as a result of the uh the agreement and napoleon's uh intentions of basically bringing the whole european continent uh into his continental system you know, blockading uh british commerce mm-hmm. he asked the russians to uh basically invade sweden and force them into joining the continental system Right, and so um, Bagration is reassigned to the Spanish War in 1808. That's right. One of the most uh, daring uh, 
operations yeah, uh, of the war yeah. was when the Russians basically have three columns uh, and they cross, uh, it's in the winter. So the Gulf of, the Gulf of Bo Bothnia um, is frozen. Mm. And uh, these three uh, Russian columns, of which uh, Bagration is the largest uh, in the south, um, with around you know seventeen thousand men or something, um, they march across the frozen ice to capture uh, the Arland Islands. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you know this this uh, really uh, sort of again sort of propels him. Uh, up the ranks, he uh, he becomes a general of infantry. Uh, not uh, not too long after, and uh, in fact, the uh, the operation was so successful that uh, Bagration sends, you know, having captured the Island Islands, he sends a cavalry force of like four hundred men under General Kornyev mm -hmm. um, to you know press on and you know to. To, to try and essentially you know, get whatever advantage yeah. um, he could, you know, from having surprised the Swedes. But yeah. the Swedes were so so surprised that he went, you know, all the way towards the Swedish mainland and um, you know, was threatening Stockholm. I don't think people realize how brave this is to lead, you know, mm -hmm. seventeen thousand men plus horses plus heavy cannons plus wagons across ice, you know, which could break at any time and kill your whole force. You know, I, right? I just think it's amazing that he did that. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, you've, sometimes you've you've got to take uh, you've got to be bold and you've got to take uh, risks. Rich, yeah. And the obviously the Swedes were <laughs> completely astonished. Obviously, after such a um, daring campaign, uh, Bagration, uh, his reputation, you know, only continues to grow. Mm -hmm. um, but um, very soon after this, he is uh, transferred. Um, to the Moldavian front um, to fight the Ottomans. Mm. And again, this is um, to do with rumours that he's engaged in an affair with um, Grand Duchess uh, uh, mm. Catherine uh, Pavlovna. Mm. And it's, this is at an especially interesting juncture because 1809 is when Napoleon uh, is preparing to divorce Josephine right. and to try to like and initially, he tries to find a Russian bride, mm -hmm. and uh, Catherine is uh, no, is the princess that he's uh, he's got his eyes on, right? And uh, in various sort of diplomatic communications with the Russians, like the Russians kind of get the hint, and she is very quickly married off to uh, Prince George of Oldenburg. Mm -hmm. uh, or Duke um, George of Oldenburg um, to basically, uh, you know, uh, take her out, uh, take her off the market. Gratian goes to fight in uh, fight the Ottomans, and you know, while he um, he performs okay, mm -hmm. really the main um, the main <laughs> the main story um, of his experience fighting the the Turks in you know, eighteen oh nine, eighteen ten, is his well, his rivalry with uh, General Miloradovich. They couldn't stand each other. They were both, you know, trying to be the prima donna, and you know, yeah. you can only have one prima donna. Um, 
Right. And we can, we can move on with that, you know, yeah. with that same line that happened in 1812, the, the French invasion. Um, That's right. De Tolle was the commander in chief, but Bagration was not subordinate because he was the older <laughs> general. So he was getting orders from the czar, but he's also getting orders from De Tolle. And it must have been very confusing for him on what to do or who to listen to. That's right. So uh, in preparation for the 1812 campaign, the Russians come up with this strategic plan. Basically, they expect Napoleon to march into Russia with an army of, you know, maybe around 200,000 men. And then... Uh, you'd have Barclay de Tolly as commander-in-chief of the first Western army, mm-hmm. uh, which would, uh, you know, some 130,000 men, which would basically uh, lure Napoleon's forces mm-hmm. uh, to a fortified camp um, on the banks of the river uh, Divina and Drissa. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, uh, the Russians, you know, uh, already in their sort of pre-prepared uh, position would defend against uh, Napoleon's attempt mm-hmm. to take the fort. Mm-hmm. And then you have the second Western army under Bagration, you know, some you know, 40, 50,000 men, which mm-hmm. would operate uh, in Napoleon's flank and, flank and rear and basically serve as the hammer to Barclay's anvil. Right. And together they would crush um uh napoleon in the middle yeah and that's not the way it went though no, no. uh but also uh, uh, uh just just to go back to your um point about um uh the command structure mm-hmm. so barclay de tolly had had been minister of war uh right. well, was still minister of war at that time and he was instrumental in the preparations uh for the resumption of hostilities with napoleon and so it was taken for granted that the Tsar was, you know, de jure um, commander-in-chief. Like, you know, so long as the Tsar was around, he yeah. would have, like, you know, um, official authority over the army. Of but course. there was the question of, you know, if the Tsar isn't around, you know, um, or even the, if, if the Tsar is there, obviously he'll need, you know, some sort of um, uh, military officer to... Um, serve as de facto commander and that's what barclay had proposed mm-hmm. but alexander decided um not to appoint a supreme commander firstly because he was um initially you know around um at uh, barclay's headquarters so he was exercising the duties of a supreme commander as well mm-hmm. um but also as to uh prevent the jealousies of, you know, Bagration or Barclay. So it's like Bagration had full authority over his army of, you know, 50,000. Barclay had full authority over his army of 130,000. But neither had authority over the other's men. It was only due to the fact that Barclay was also minister of war and therefore he could claim to be speaking on uh, or to be giving orders on behalf of the Tsar, that Bagration kind of begrudgingly accepted that, okay, maybe I actually have to listen to this guy. Yeah, but I think it was interesting, uh, you know, jumping ahead to the battle of Smolensk mm-hmm. in August, uh, yeah. he kind of 
course, they told his hand because he wasn't supposed to go to Smolensk, but he did anyways, just to kind of fortify that town. I think he knew that's where Napoleon was going. So I think it was it was kind of interesting that he didn't go west as he was ordered. He's like, you know what, I'm going to go to Smolensk with my army. If they totally wants to show up and help me out, great. If not, I'm going to make a stand because I'm tired of retreating. <laughs> yes, well, it's, it's quite um, interesting how, how the dynamics um, how it plays out between the two men. You know, Barclay continues the retreat to Drissa, but once he gets to Drissa, he realizes, well, you know, this camp makes no sense whatsoever. You know, the fortifications aren't, um, you know, aren't done properly. And, you know, they're fighting not behind, but in front of a river. So right. um, it's like none of none of the position makes sense. <laughs> and, and you know, the Tsar realizes, you know, there's, there's no point right. trying to trying to face Napoleon here. So uh, Barclay retreats to Vichyevsk, and um, that's where, uh, well, the, the strategic priority at this point is to unite the two Russian armies as quickly as possible so that Napoleon doesn't get the opportunity to destroy them in detail. Right. The second army retreats, and once Barclay hears that Bagration has retreated, He's like, well, there's no point in me staying in Vityevsk. So right. he continues um, to retreat as well. But Bukharation is just like, you know, why are you retreating? Why aren't you standing and fighting? Right. <laughs> and, then, and then Barclay's like, well, yeah, I would have stood and fought if you were able to, to join me. Right. And then Bukharation's like, well, I had the voo in, <laughs> in the way. <laughs> so like they're both blaming each other right. for, you know, failing to stand and fight. Yeah. Um, and the yeah the the um the insults actually get pretty nasty yeah. because um Bagration, uh you know sees Barclay as uh you know this this foreigner essentially this this yep, you know, yep, yep. Uh, this German with a French name <laughs> and who doesn't fight he just keeps retreating so yeah I could, right I can see why the two men would have loggerheads for sure and um they basically you know. Uh, yeah, uh, call each other names like uh, Bagration uh, writes to, um, uh, you know, the likes of uh, General Arakcheyev in St. Petersburg, who's, you know, very close to the Tsar, mm -hmm. and also to um, uh, General Yamolov, who, even though he's serving as Barclay's chief of staff, he is not Barclay's biggest fan, mm -hmm. and he is basically... Um, Tsar Alexander basically put him there to keep an eye on Barclay. Right. And, and therefore, you know, you've got these, uh, these two people who are very close to the Tsar, um, who are, you know, um, who have some degree of um, authority over, uh, over Barclay, uh, basically being told, you know, these things uh, by, by Bagration, you know, um, Bagration saying, you know, he's a coward, he should face court-martial, you know. <laughs> right. and, um, but eventually, uh, Barclay and Bagration do manage to join up together at Smolensk. Yep. And there is a brief truce for a couple of days. You know, they, they go uh, inspecting the men, each, each other's armies, you know, um, on horseback, you know, um, hand in hand, uh, as, a, as a show of unity. Just to yeah. summarize, Smolensk, mm -hmm. you know, it, it turns into quite a quagmire, you know, basically the whole town's on fire due to shelling. And yeah. so they 
retreat out of there. I mean, I, technically it's Alaska. They had to retreat, but they, they really bloodied the nose of Napoleon in that battle. That's right. I mean, around 20,000 um, casualties on either side, mm-hmm. um, and we, you know, which is not bad going given the fact that uh, the Russians did have a small army and really it was only um, two corps, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, Ravsky's seven corps and then later um, uh, relieved by Dokhtarov's uh, six corps, which okay. mainly did the fighting. And um, at this point, like Barclay, I think already knew that Smolensk was untenable. Right. And um, he feared encirclement and therefore, uh, even though the Russians were still holding on, he decided to abandon the city. Right. And he, you know, he agreed earlier that Bagration would, uh, would retreat to cover um, the uh, communications back to, um, uh, back to Moscow. Right. while he would take over command of the fight in Smolensk. Right. Right. <laughs> so is already, you know, like carrying out his orders, you know, on his way um, uh, on the road to Moscow when he hears that Bagra- that Barclay has uh, withdrawn from the city and he's completely infuriated, right? Yeah, like, let, let, let's talk about that, you know, because they move <laughs> backwards towards Moscow and we have the big battle of Borodino. Um, yeah, where basically they construct um, they're called fleshes or narrow, yeah. arrowhead shaped like open backed earthworks, basically mm-hmm. mini forts in front of Moscow. Um, but they don't have enough engineers or they don't have enough time to construct yeah. them properly. So mm-hmm. Bagration and you know Kutuzov is there, and it's mm-hmm. you know one of the largest battles of the Napoleonic War, and it's just a, mm-hmm. another bloody mess, correct? Yeah, so with uh, Borodino, it's like Kutuzov, uh, you know, fought it mainly for political reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to make a show outside uh, outside Moscow, you know, he couldn't <laughs> let the enemy into Moscow without a fight. Right. And uh, that's basically what he had been ordered um, by the Tsar to do. Um, and the way that he deployed his army was that the bulk of the um, Russian army, the, the right and center, um, or Barclay's first army, uh, was um, stationed around the old, uh, the, the new Smolensk road, um, which is like the main road um, leading from Smolensk to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bagration, his, uh, his second army, again, like, you know, by this point, you know, 30, 40,000 men, it's kind of left rather exposed on the left flank mm-hmm. and there are various uh, theories um why this was the case you know uh, did you know kutuzov may have uh, kind of wanted to lure the um uh, the french into uh, attacking uh, bagration knowing how well equipped bagration was as a defensive general mm-hmm. to cope with uh, the onslaught um the other explanation is just that you know, Kutuzov was terrified about being um, essentially being outflanked and yeah. uh, on the on his right, um, and you know the, the 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 French basically you know marching on uh, on Moscow, having sort of overcome you know uh, 
any sort of defenses on the New Smolensk road. And therefore, uh, Kutuzov wanted to make sure that his right and center was very strong. This is uh, unfortunately going to be the last stand of our protagonist. <laughs> uh, the, do you want to talk about, because I keep reading about how he died, and uh, it sounds... <laughs> yeah, so, you know, uh, as I said, he, he was on the left uh, around the village of Semyonovskaya, the weakest um, sector of the Russian line. So in order to, to bolster them, he does uh, order the construction of these flashes um, uh, in front of the village. Um, but during the course of the battle, like the flashes were captured and recaptured, you know, as many as seven or eight times, mm -hmm. uh, wave after wave of, you know, attacks and counterattacks. And this is part of, um, you know, Bagration's doctrine as well. You know, even when on the defensive, he, uh, you know, rather than just waiting in line, he mobilizes reserves to, yeah. Uh, if his if his position is overrun or something, then he will use his reserves um, to attack in column um, at the point of the bayonet to retake mm -hmm. any positions. So this is why the flashes are arrow shaped because they're open at the back. Yeah. So they allow it's it's kind of easy um, for reinforcements to uh, to retake those, yeah. those, those positions, and you know. Uh, 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 at times, you know, it seemed like this this god of the army was was a real god, kind of, you know. I love in his um, manual, there was a, mm -hmm. the, the words, we are cut off are not allowed to be said. Uh, and it's right. brave people are never cut off. Wherever the enemy goes, turn your breast to follow and defeat him, end quote. And I yeah. guess that speaks to his mind, like, you know, I don't, care if I'm surrounded or in a flesh or in front of Moscow, I'll, I'll yeah. defeat wherever wherever the enemy is, I'll defeat him. Um, um, exactly. So, like, uh, Bagration is not, you know, his career, he's, he's been remarkably cool under fire. Mm -hmm. So he's not, he's not faced, he's not afraid, he's, he's been in, you know, such situations. And um, before, and he, you know, rallies his his men for you know wave after wave of counterattack. Um, but uh, you know, at some point in the in the morning, you know, various sources differ about the time, but it was probably around um, nine o'clock. Mm -hmm. um, after you know, already you know, the the fleshes had um, changed hand a few times. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Bagration was you know, giving orders. Counterattack, you know, waving his sword, you know, hurrah! And at that point, uh, enemy shell struck right. his, because uh, his left thigh. Right. And he's wounded in the leg, and he's taking from the field, and he's not killed outright. He, but the the, I guess the sight of him being taken away by the field kind of it impacts the morale of the army, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because you know, again, this guy is the god of the army. It's you know, he seemed immortal, right? And um, uh, yeah, he's he's so popular among the men that obviously you know, and even if they didn't think that you know he was killed, you know, they didn't know how bad the wound was going to be or or so on. So obviously, the Russian lines buckled, mm -hmm. and you know had. Uh, had the French, you know, been able to press their attack at this point, you know, maybe 
um, they would have seen you know quite a bit of success, right. and you know at this point you had you know like uh, junior Russian generals basically you know rushing into the counterattack right. and sacrificing their lives in the process right. in order to make sure that the Russian line remained intact. Right. Um, so and does does it develop gangrene or how does he die exactly? Essentially, uh, Bagration lingers on for you know about uh, 20 days still mm. anxious about the fate of um russia and its ar army mm. and doctors advised amputating his wounded leg in order to stop the spread of gangrene but mm. uh Bagration refused you know, supposedly you know, um saying you know i was uh, i came into this earth with uh, with two legs, you know, how can I meet my maker with just one? Right. <laughs> right. So he basically refuses amputation, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, as a result of that, he finally succumbs mm -hmm. uh, on the twenty fourth of September, and mm -hmm. at that point, he's uh, uh, he's been evacuated to uh, Sima in uh, Vladimir province, and he's staying. You know, at the house of uh, one of his friends, mm -hmm. um, and by this point, Napoleon was already in Moscow, and Bagration would have had some idea um, that uh, that this was the case. Yeah, uh, and this would obviously have added to his sense of grief and loss. The tragic part is that yeah. you know, he died. You know why Napoleon's in Moscow, so he didn't get to see like the Russian, uh, the other Russian generals see Napoleon. Defeated. He kind of died. <laughs> Before the epic ended, you know. Well, what do you so, think his mm -hmm. legacy is, though, Bagration? Mm -hmm. um, it, it just—he was so talented. Uh, his troops yeah. loved him. Uh, he was very good at organizing. Uh, discipline was important. Mm -hmm. He reminds me a bit of Debu as well. Just he—he he respected the bravery of his troops, and uh, he always tried to look after them. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, the the Davu uh, comparison is is very interesting because um, of his yeah uh, of the demands he made of his men, but also of um, yeah. I think <laughs> well, I think Bagration was a lot kinder to his men than than Davu was, oh, yeah. um, but um, but you know the 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 loyalty that he managed to inspire. And uh, and again, his 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 tremendous um, uh, defensive skills, and uh, he's he remains, you know, uh, his memory remains very uh, much in the um, uh, in the memory of um, of the Russian army. So in 1839, his remains were transferred to the battlefield of uh, Borodino to, um, yeah, at the foot of the new monument um, uh, on the Rajski uh, readout, on the great readout. Interesting. Um, and again, this was actually, um, uh, this was actually the idea of uh, Denis uh, Davidov, uh, the, um, the famed uh, partisan uh, commander, mm -hmm. who, uh, funny enough, like Davidov had grown up on the Borodino estate Mm -hmm. um so it was basically his patrimony and mm -hmm. he um and he had this um idea of repatriating or not re repatriating but you know transferring uh Bagradion's remains to the site of his you know his last heroic battle right. and um 
Davidov, uh, you know, the plans were for him to, you know, lead the escort. But unfortunately, Davidov himself dies uh, very shortly before the ceremony. Mm. Um, uh, but you know, even after that, you know, Bagration's heroic death at Borodino, you know, very much like Nelson at Trafalgar, you know, creates this myth mm-hmm. um, among, you know, both the Russian army and the Russian people. And for much of the uh, last two centuries, you know, his name is only second to Kutuzov in right. the pantheon of heroes of 1812, right. uh, you know, which, you know, does, you know, take away a bit from <laughs> from from the likes of Barclay. And yeah. it's um, it's interesting because despite his princely status, he remained a popular hero during the Soviet era. Yeah. And part of this you know, may have been due to the fact that um, he was you know, a fellow Georgian um, uh, to Stalin. Yeah, and um, point. during the Second World War, you know, Stalin uh, sort of uh, built on Bagration's memory yeah. by, you know, um, calling, you know, this major operation to reconquer um, Belarus, you know, um, Operation Bagration mm-hmm. uh, in June uh, 1944. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in 1946, when uh, the Soviets annexed um, you know, part of East Prussia, uh, which they uh, renamed uh, Kaliningrad, uh, the town of Ailau, where Bagration had fought with distinction, uh, was renamed uh, B- uh, Bagrationovsk yeah, yeah, in his really, honor. Yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting. So yeah. it's this this legacy, this 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 myth um, continues, um, and you know even in the uh, after the fall of the uh, of the Soviet Union. In the late 1990s, I believe, uh, an equestrian statue was uh, erected to him in uh, in Moscow, um, you know, not too far away from uh, uh, the Kutuzov's uh, equestrian statue and the uh, Battle of Borodino uh, Panorama Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of shows him with his... Um, uh, uh, you know, holding his sword um, aloft, you know, like giving uh, giving his orders about to, you know, about to charge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a very sort of dynamic um, statue, which yeah. really, you know, I think um, uh, sort of embodies um, the the essence of the man. Like he was always active. Uh, on the battlefield, you know, always giving orders. Yeah, always uh, leading from the front. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, I learned a lot, Jimmy. That was some <laughs> biography. I, I knew a little bit of it, yeah. but I really appreciate the details. I um, just a phenomenal respect for the man. So, uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, uh, very happy, um, and I think you know, I, I hope also that uh, uh, our audience. Um, we'll have uh, learned a lot um, about uh, this you know, remarkable um, character. And yeah, as, as you quoted from, um, from Napoleon, you know, uh, I think it's a bit unfair to say, to say that he was uh, Russia's only <laughs> uh, good general. Agreed. Uh, but he was certainly uh, one of the best. Indeed. Indeed. And um, for my listeners, again, the website that Jimmy uh, 
lives and breathes is called napoleonicimpressions.com. And uh, I suggest everyone at least go check it out.